Section 9. Europe and the Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe and the Faith by Hilaire Belloc. Section 9. Chapter 2. Continued. The reader may here object, but surely there was heresy after heresy, and thousands of men were at any moment claiming the name of Christian, whom the Orthodox Church rejected. Nay, some suffered martyrdom rather than relinquish the name. True, but the very existence of such sects should be enough to prove the point at issue. These sects arose precisely because within the Catholic Church exact doctrine, unbroken tradition, and absolute unity were all three regarded as the necessary marks of the institution. The heresies arose one after another from the action of men who were prepared to define yet more punctiliously what the truth might be, and to claim with yet more particular insistence the possession of living tradition and the right to be regarded as the center of unity. No heresy pretended that the truth was vague and indefinite. The whole gist and meaning of a heresy was that it, the heresy, or he, the heresarch, was prepared to make doctrine yet more sharp and to assert his own definition. What you find in these foundational times is not the Catholic Church asserting and defining a thing, and then, some time after, the heresarch denying this definition. No, heresy comes within a hundred miles of such a procedure. What happened in the early church is that some doctrine not yet fully defined is laid down by such and such a man, that his final settlement clashes with the opinion of others, that after debate and counsel and also authoritative statement on the part of the bishops, this man's solution is rejected and an orthodox solution is defined. From that moment the heresarch, if he will not fall into line with the defined opinion, ceases to be in communion and his rejection no less than his own original insistence upon his doctrine, are in themselves proof that both he and his judges postulate unity and definition as the two necessary marks of the Catholic truth. No early heretic or no early orthodox authority dreams of saying to his opponent, You may be right. Let us agree to differ. Let us each form his part of Christian society and look at things from his own point of view. The moment a question is raised, it must of its nature, the early church being what it was, be defined one way or the other. Well, then, what was this body of doctrine held by common tradition and present everywhere in the first years of the third century? Let me briefly set down what we know as a matter of historical and documentary evidence, the church of this period to have held. What we know is a very different matter from what we can guess. We may amplify it from our conceptions of the probable according to our knowledge of that society, as, for instance, when we say that there was probably a bishop at Marseilles before the middle of the second century. Or we may amplify it by guesswork and suppose, in the absence of evidence, some just possible but exceedingly improbable thing as that an important canonical gospel has been lost. There is an infinite range for guesswork, both orthodox and heretical, 
but the plain and known facts which repose upon historical and documentary evidence and which have no corresponding documentary evidence against them are both few and certain let us take such a writer as tertullian and set down what was certainly true of his time tertullian was a man of about forty in the year two hundred the church then thought as an unbroken tradition that a man who had been put to death about one hundred and seventy years before in palestine only a hundred and thirty years before tertullian's birth had risen again on the third day this man was a known and real person with whom numbers had conversed in tertullian's childhood men still lived who had met eyewitnesses of the thing asserted this man the church said was also the supreme creator god there you have an apparent contradiction in terms at any rate a mystery fruitful in opportunities for theory and as a fact destined to lead to three centuries of more and more particular definition this man who also was god himself had through chosen companions called apostles founded a strict and disciplined society called the church the doctrines the church taught professed to be his doctrines they included the immortality of the human soul its redemption its alternative of salvation and damnation initiation into the church was by way of baptism with water in the name of the trinity father son and holy ghost before his death this man who was also god had instituted a certain rite and mystery called the eucharist he took bread and wine and changed them into his body and blood he ordered this rite to be continued the central act of worship of the christian church was therefore a consecration of bread and wine by priests in the presence of the initiated and baptized christian body of the locality the bread and wine so consecrated were certainly called universally the body of the lord the faithful also certainly communicated that is ate the bread and drank the wine thus changed in the mystery it was the central rite of the church thus to take the body of the lord there was certainly at the head of each christian community a bishop regarded as directly the successor of the apostles the chief agent of the ritual and the guardian of the doctrine the whole increasing body of local communities kept in touch through their bishops held one doctrine and practiced what was substantially one ritual all that is plain history the numerical proportion of the church in the city of carthage where tertullian wrote was certainly large enough for its general suppression to be impossible one might argue from one of his phrases that it was a tenth of the population equally certainly did the unity of the christian church and its bishops teach the institution of the eucharist the resurrection the authority of the apostles and their power of tradition through the bishops a very large number of converts were to be noted and to go back to tertullian the majority of his time by his testimony were recruited by conversion and were not born christians such is known to have been in a very brief outline the manner of the catholic church in these early years of the third century such was the undisputed manner of the church as a christian or an inquiring pagan would have been acquainted with it in the years one sixty to two hundred and onwards 
I have purposely chosen this moment because it is the moment in which Christian evidence first emerges upon any considerable scale. Many of the points I have set down are, of course, demonstrably anterior to the third century. I mean by demonstrably anterior, proved in earlier documentary testimony. That ritual and doctrine firmly fixed are long anterior to the time in which you find them rooted, is obvious to common sense, but there are documents as well. Thus we have Justin Martyr. He was no less than sixty years older than Tertullian. He was as near to the crucifixion as my generation is to the reform bill, and he gave us a full description of the Mass. We have the letters of St. Ignatius. He was a much older man than St. Justin, perhaps forty or fifty years older. He stood to the generations contemporary with our Lord as I stand to the generation of Gladstone, Bismarck, and early as he is, he testifies fully to the organization of the Church with its bishops, the Eucharistic doctrine, and the primacy in it of the Roman See. The literature remaining to us from the early first century and a half after the crucifixion is very scanty. The writings of what are called apostolic times, that is, documents proceeding immediately from men who could remember the time of our Lord, form not only in their quantity, and that is sufficiently remarkable, but in their quality too a far superior body of evidence to what we possess from the next generation. We have more in the New Testament than we have in the writings of these men who came just after the death of the Apostles. But what does remain is quite convincing. There arose from the date of our Lord's ascension into heaven, from say A.D. 30 or so, before the death of Tiberius and a long lifetime after the Roman organization of Gaul, a definite, strictly ruled and highly individual society with fixed doctrines, special mysteries, and a strong discipline of its own, with a most vivid, distinct personality, unmistakable. And this society was and is called the Church. I would beg the reader to know with precision both the task upon which we are engaged and the exact dates with which we are dealing, for there is no matter in which history has been more grievously distorted by religious bias. The task upon which we are engaged is the judgment of a portion of history as it was. I am not writing here from a brief. I am concerned to set forth a fact. I am acting as a witness or a copier, not as an advocate or lawyer. And I say that the conclusion we can establish with regard to the Christian community on these main lines is the conclusion to which any man must come, quite independent of his creed. He will deny these facts only if he has such bias against the faith as interferes with his reason. A man's belief in the mission of the Catholic Church, his confidence in its divine origin, do not move him to these plain historical conclusions any more than they move him to his conclusions upon the real existence, doctrine, and organization of contemporary Mormonism. Whether the Church told the truth is for philosophy to discuss. What the Church in fact was is plain history. The Church may have taught nonsense, its organization may have been a clumsy human thing that would not affect the historical facts. By the year 200, the Church was everywhere, manifestly and in ample evidence throughout the Roman world. What I have described, 
and taught the doctrines I have just enumerated. But it stretches back 170 years before that date, and it has evidence to its title throughout that era of youth. To see that the state of affairs everywhere, widely apparently in 200, was rooted in the very origins of the institution 170 years before, to see that all this mass of ritual doctrine and discipline starts with the first third of the first century, and the church was from its birth the church, the reader must consider the dates. We know that we have in the body of documents contained in the canon which the Church has authorized as the New Testament, documents proceeding from men who were contemporary with the origin of the Christian religion. Even modern scholarship, with all its love of fantasy, is now clear upon so obvious a point. The authors of the Gospels, the Acts, and the Epistles, Clement also and Ignatius also, who had conversed with the apostles, may have been deceived. They may have been deceiving. I am not here concerned with that point. The discussion of it belongs to another province of argument altogether. But they were contemporaries of the things they said they were contemporaries of. In other words, their writings are what is called authentic. If I read in the four Gospels, not only the first three of such, of such and such a miracle, I believe it or I disbelieve it, but I am reading the account of a man who lived at the time when the miracle is said to have happened. If you read in Ignatius seven certainly genuine letters of Episcopacy and the Eucharist, you may think him a wrong-headed enthusiast, but you know that you're reading the work of a man who personally witnessed the beginnings of the Church. You know that the customs, manners, doctrines, and institutions he mentions or takes for granted were certainly those of his time, that is, of the origin of Catholicism, though you may think the customs silly and the doctrines nonsense. The End of Section 9